context and culture. A podcast hosted by pastors Corey Majors and Trent Roseman, intended to clarify and comment on critical issues pertaining to theology, the Bible, and life in the church. Now, enjoy the podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the In Context and Culture podcast. So glad that you're joining us either on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, on wherever you get your podcasts, or even on now YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram in video format. So we We are are everywhere. We're global. (laughs) So, hey, we are glad you are joining us, that you've been walking through the book of Revelation with us. Once again, if you are joining us now, we're in chapter two. So we want to encourage you to go back to the beginnings of our our season, season two, so you can walk through the book of Revelation with us, just like your own personal Bible study. So yeah, we're back. Uh, I'm excited, all different places that we're on right now. Um, you can search us anywhere, basically just by looking up in context and culture with spaces or just all together as one word. So anything you want to say at the beginning before we get started, Corey? No, I think you're, I think you've covered it. I, well, I would say, uh, I would reiterate what you said. Uh, don't get left behind folks. Go back and watch them. Very nice. Um, Hey, so I would just say this, uh, uh, make sure like one thing I think we have had a lot of people that have followed us on Instagram and stuff. We always could use more obviously. Um, but we can always use your help by rating and reviewing our podcast on, um, Apple podcasts. That's very helpful. Um, just, uh, for people searching it, they'll easily be able to search it that way. So, but only if they're really good reviews, don't get uh, any one stars. We need some five. Um, I feel like I just want to share some random stuff at the beginning, but we don't have that much time. So let's go ahead and get started. Uh, We are at the beginning of the um, messages to the churches in the book of Revelation. So you'll find us in chapter two. Uh, This is the first letter, the letter to Ephesus. So Corey, why don't you just uh, begin by reading verses one through, is it seven? Yes. Reading verse one through seven from the English Standard Version. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the, the, the works of the Nicolaitans, or Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right. Well, hey, thanks for listening or reading that along with us. Uh, We do have a fourfold structure that we try to keep to, which is context, Christ, culture, and of course, any controversy that the passage might have within it. So we're going to go ahead and just start with context. Uh, This is just the matters of what uh, maybe some symbolism, where we're at in the book, uh, what's the structure of the particular passage. So uh, we find ourselves in chapter two, chapters two and three are letters to seven churches, that seven being a unique uh, number 
uh, throughout the book of Revelation. We've already covered that, but basically seven is used the most out of any number in the book of Revelation. It's a number for fullness. So while this letter is to seven specific churches in Asia Minor, uh, Corey and I believe it to be to the church uh, universal, that is to churches that have trusted in uh, Christ throughout the ages uh, and follow Christ throughout the ages. Uh, we ourselves are uh, a part of that church. So this is very much to us. Um, but as you look in the, the book of Revelation, this is the first of many sevenfold series um, that we find. Uh, the letters to the churches come first, then you have um, the seals, seven seals, seven trumpets, and then seven bowls, including judgments and words of God and things like that. Uh, this is course, written by the, uh, um, the apostle John, exiled on Patmos, and he's given this word to write to the angels of the churches. Um, the angels of the churches we talked about on last week's podcast. Uh, Corey grilled me on who I believe the angels to represent, uh, and I hope I did a good job uh, answering those questions. We don't think that they're pastors. That's a common interpretation. We think they're either spiritual beings or representative of the spiritual state of each individual church. So um, or the, the, the spiritual side of the, the churches. So um, is that a, a good way of saying that? I feel like I probably didn't say that well. No, it's good. It's good. Okay. Um, each church has a, um, is, um, has a spiritual presence as well as an earthly presence. And so could be either to the church, just directly angel being the church or a spiritual being overseeing in some way, a part of in some way, the church. So um, John is writing to these angels to deliver these words to these seven specific churches and the churches as a whole. And uh, I think it'd be good just for us to look at these seven churches and give, give a brief summary, right? So um, I'm going to start with that, and then we'll walk through structure together. Is that okay? Yep, you just bet. Help me out with summary. So we've got Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Um, two of those churches uh, are given uh, only positive commendations. Uh, two of those churches are only given negative uh, uh, um, rebukes, I guess. Uh, and then three of the churches are given both uh, things that they do well and things that they are not doing well. Um, there's always a response uh, that they're um, encouraged to respond with so that they remain and continue to be faithful. So uh, anything as far as just a summary before we look at the structure of each letter? Well, I do think it is important to, to see that there are some similarities between the churches too. I mean, you mentioned two of them receiving uh, no rebuke um, and stuff like that. But, but the first church, uh, Ephesus, and the last one, Laodicea, seem to have some similarities because there's a One's lost his first love, the other one's lukewarm. And then you've got the second one, which is uh, Smyrna, and uh, the next to last one, which is Philadelphia. And um, those are the ones that don't receive any correction or rebuke. And then you've got these three in the middle, and you've got one that's, uh, they've got some people in there that, that adhere to this false teaching. You've got another, the next one that is participating uh, in all of these, um, this immorality. Um, and, and idolatry. And then you've got this third one. So you've got these three in the middle that are sandwiched and um, they get progressively worse. So you've got one that's holding the teachings, one that's participating in it and one that is just dead. And so um, I think that's good to see in there as well, that, that you've got these four on the outsides, but these three kind of make a focal point where that last one that Sardis is dead. Um, it really is kind of hitting home there. So mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think too, the, the there's a 
great comparison and there's a great contrast between some of these mm-hmm. that we even say see practically in our day amongst churches right yeah. so before we i don't want to get too much into this because we'll talk about it when we get into culture but um you have maybe a church that's really heavy in their doctrine and yet they're dull in their practical obedience right and just living out the day-to-day life of what it means to follow Christ and love others. And then you have churches that are, uh, they love well, right? right? I mean, they, um, they are lavish in their love and yet they're acting in uh, allowing false teaching to come in. So you have false teaching is a big problem in some of these churches. And then you have um, practical obedience is a problem in some of these churches. And sometimes they're like put at opposites. One loves well um, while one, uh, you know, obeys well or something like that if that makes sense uh, or teaches well but doesn't love well so um let's just look at the go ahead well i i think um i heard a sermon one time by, by kevin de young addressing these seven churches and uh, one of the things he said is we we've got to be real careful um because it because we don't necessarily have all of the things wrong with each church uh, today that is wrong with each one of the churches. And we don't necessarily have the good things in each one of the churches in every church today. And so like not everything is going to be applicable, but it's good to let these, to, to let these churches and what is said about them wash over us so that we do understand and let the spirit reveal those things in the condition of our own church. Because I think largely uh, we are oblivious to our own church just because that's where we live all the time. And just how you can get used to your surroundings and somebody else can come in and see things that you never see in the same way. Uh, we can get that way in the church. And and it's good to let these churches be diagnostic tools and the spirit um, use, use them to reveal those things to us. Yeah. We see the problems in others faster than we see the problems in ourselves, right? For sure. <laughs> so, so some of these strengths uh, we may identify with or not, we may identify with some of the weaknesses or not. Um, at the end of the day, though, we, we ought to let the word of God read us rather than just reading the word of God, right? Applying, yeah. okay, wh- where do I fall short here, mm-hmm. right? So as he brings these words of commendation, words of encouragement, words of rebuke, words of admonishment, he does it, the Lord does it in a very specific structured way, it seems, almost every time, right? So let's walk through that structure so we can identify what he's writing to Ephesus in the verse seven verses in chapter two, but let's just look through the structure for all the churches. You've got a description of God, right? So God, something is said about um, the author every time at the very beginning, right? God himself. Then you've got a diagnosis of the church. Could be something positive, could be something negative, could be both, right? Um, So uh, in this diagnosis, the Lord is saying, I know something about you. Right. We've already looked at he's present with his churches, walking among the lampstands. And he says, I know something about you. And it might be what you're doing well. And it might be what you're doing poorly. Right. Um, And it might be both. Uh, Then there's a solution given. Uh, Maybe obedience is needed. Uh, You might you you must respond in this way. Right. Um, uh, To this rebuke. Uh, Then there's a consequence given if they don't respond right? If they remain disobedient and they don't heed the warning of being obedient, becoming obedient. uh, So they must respond if not God will. And then if they do respond and obey, uh, there is 
uh, a promise given, promise for conquerors, for those who remain faithful. This promise is the promise to all believers in the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 21, chapter 22, that they'll be with the Lord forever. Right? That's the eventual promise that they hold on to. Um, so these letters are practical, they're personal, and they're for churches that need to hear and heed both the warning and the uh, consequences will come if they don't respond to the warning. Anything you want to add to that? Well, I That's think true. it's important too, that whenever you see what Christ says about himself, it's always what the church needs to hear to deal with what's going on in the church. Like he, he reveals these things about himself, like just saying to the church at Ephesus, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's obviously taken from the vision that John had of Christ. But in that vision, the, the character qualities of Christ and what he reveals to each in particular church is going to be something that they need to remember whenever, whenever he brings their commendation or their correction. Um, and so it, it's very applicable. The character of Christ is always applicable to the church. Hmm. that's good yeah i don't know how to add to that that's really good um yeah uh so let's look at ephesus specifically right so let's follow that structure let's look at ephesus specifically and let's look at the description diagnosis solution consequence promise uh so god is described in chapter uh, 2 verse 1 in this letter as the one who holds the seven stars, which of course we know from verse 20 of chapter one are the angels, right? And then walks amongst the lampstands, the seven lampstands, which of course are the churches themselves, right? So something to God's presence here. We'll look about, we'll, we'll look in our Christ section more to that. Um, there's a diagnosis. He says, I know um, uh, about the things that you've done. Uh, basically he gives them an A plus on their doctrinal vigilance, right? That they've uh, tested the spirits. We'll look at more of this later, um, but they're strong in their doctrine, right? But it looks like um, uh, they've abandoned their first love. They don't love well. So what's unique here is it says basically they hate well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like you think, oh, uh, what? <laughs> no, he, he commends them for how they hate the works of the Nicolaitans, right? Which he hates as well. Mm -hmm. So they hate well but they don't love well. Right. And that's the issue that he brings up in their diagnosis of what they're negative. They have kept doctorally vigilant. They've kept with patient endurance, but they've abandoned their first love. All right. And because of his presence with them, nothing's hidden from his perception. So he, he mentions both the positive and negative here. What's the, so he gives a solution command. Do you want to just keep going on some things that are mentioned about Ephesus solution, consequence, promise, just walking through it. Do you want me to just keep going? Yeah, keep going. Okay, yeah. So the solution is remember your first love, repent, right? Return to your first works. So they've kept doctrinally vigilant. They need, or they, they've, they've uh, endured patiently, but they've abandoned their first love. And because they've abandoned their first love, the solution is remember the works you did at first, repent um, from what you're not doing, right? And mm -hmm. from what you don't love that you should and return to those first works. So at one point they loved well, right? Yeah. Um, and then there's a consequence. If you don't, I will come, right? So I'm here, but I'm gonna come to you and I'm gonna remove your lampstand. I will bring your witness uh, 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 away from you. I will take your witness away from you in a sense. Um, anything you wanna say to that real quick before we move on? I'll remove your lampstand. 
We'll, we'll talk more about that. Yeah, we can talk more about that uh, in, okay. the, in the culture section. Yeah. And then the promise is for those who do conquer, remain faithful. Heed my warning. Uh, I will grant you to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God, which we'll talk more about um, in just a second here. So that's the that's what's going on with Ephesus. Right. Um, extra comments. Uh, Nicolaitans, tree of life, paradise of God. This might be some a few things just at first glance that don't jump off the page with easy instruction. Um, uh, you know, it's easy to understand. Oh, I've lost my first love in a sense, but when it brings up something like the Nicolaitans at first, we're like, okay, who are they? Right. So in brief, what do we want to say about the Nicolaitans, the tree of life and the paradise of God? Well, the Nicolaitans, they were, um, they were a group of, well, they were false teachers and they were trying to lead people into idolatry and sexual immorality. Um, and so away from the things of God. Um, and they, uh, I, I believe that there is a Nicholas that is mentioned in the book of Acts that some people attribute to being the one that kind of, that, that, that where this group gets their name. Um, but, um, but they were trying to deceive and lead people away from the away from the Lord. So they're not a church. No, they're a group of people not tied to a specific place because they're amongst all these different churches and all these different places, not all mm-hmm. of them, but many of the different churches. Um, they're false teachers and they're leading people toward immorality, idolatry. Um, and we'll talk more about them because they're mentioned a lot more with like Pergamum. Right. And, and I would say that today you have the same things. I mean, they, they have a worldly philosophy, uh, if you will. And so, so the, the world philosophy was, was uh, th- this church did not want that to be in, in, in them at all. And so they were fighting hard and hating against that, uh, which they should. Um, and so you, you have some similarity today with, with that in, in our culture as well. So they were strong in the way that they're pushing against these false teachers coming in the church. That's one mm-hmm. thing that it mentions, whereas right. other churches aren't doing that well. They're like embracing the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Right. These, uh, the church of Ephesus is great. And they're saying, no, you guys are wrong. We know the word of God. We read the word of God. We'll keep the word of God. Um, get out of our house, basically. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were yeah. doing well with that. So um, there was an issue that they needed to um, uh, address amongst their church that the Lord does address. But for those who conquered, there's two phrases used here that I think are important just as a matter of context that we mentioned. The tree of life, the paradise of God, right? Uh, The tree of life mentioned in Genesis, mentioned in Revelation. Anything you want to say about the tree of life? Well, I mean, I think that those things are representative of um, just relationship with God. Um, in in the in the garden, they had to be removed from the garden when they when they had fallen, so they wouldn't remain in their sinful state. And so that that removal meant that they were no longer in relationship with Christ, or no longer in relationship with the Trinitarian God Yahweh that is revealed in the Old Testament. And um, and now, as they are looking, if we go over to the book or the chapter twenty two in Revelation, they can can have partake of the tree of life um, in the paradise of God. And so they are that they will have that continual eternal relationship with him. And so those both of those things seem to be synonymous um, of having this reward of Christ himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and oftentimes I think we look in, in each one of these, 
we look and think, well, what are those particular rewards? And when we want the blessings of God, when really the ultimate blessing is Christ himself. Uh, And I think we, I think we overlook that. Oh yeah, I've got a relationship with Jesus so I can get all this other stuff. No, it's right. You have a relationship with Christ. And as a result, you have the fullness of everything that that means. You have a relationship with Christ, and as a result, you get Christ, right? Yeah, right. Uh, Which is greater than anything else we might try to look for that we might want, right? Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of times when you you think about heaven, people always talk about the the golden streets, and it's like, yeah, yeah, that's like asphalt, (laughs) right? Like the, the, the promise is Christ and Christ himself forever. You look at the letters of Paul, and he says, um, his big point in explaining how people won't miss out on the blessings of God is uh, he says, encourage one another with these words that um, uh, so we will always be with the Lord, right? Mm-hmm. And re- the end of Revelation, it's the dwelling place of God will be with man, right? And so you've got the paradise of God, which is basically being in the presence of God with no longer any of the effects of the fall, right? And the tree of life being eternal life with him, right? Um, so it, it doesn't matter what fruit you get a taste of on the tree of life and what it tastes like. The, bro- the, 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 the promise is um, you have life and everlasting life with the Lord without the, re- the effects of the fall, right? right. Yeah. This is the hope for all who believe, right? Not good tasting fruit, right? Yeah. So, so uh, we can nitpick random stuff we don't have answers for that the, the, the promise is we get the Lord forever. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So there's context. I'm sure there's more questions that could be uh, pursued, but let's look at Christ and how he has explained um, uh, you know, as he is in this section. Um, what we've already covered is that uh, Christ is the all-powerful son of man whose kingdom has no end, uh, who is the king of kings. He's the archon, the ruler above all other rulers. Caesar has no power above the Lord. The Lord can take away Caesar's power like that. He's um, given us a specific position, grace and peace. We have uh, uh, a relationship with the Lord because of his grace. Positionally, we are righteous because he has declared us righteous because of the work of Christ. We have peace with him because of that atoning sacrifice. Uh, He is present with his churches, walking among the lampstands. But there's a few other things I think that are mentioned in this passage that you've mentioned to me. What do you think sticks out in this passage about Christ? Well, the first thing is it says that he is among the golden lampstands. Um, He is continually present with his churches. Um, God is not, uh, Christ is not a a savior that is just far off up in heaven that is um, transcendent, which he is, but he's also imminent. He he is here with us. He is, he is always present. Uh, uh, Omnipresence is the theological word for it, but, but it means that he's here all the time and, and we don't, serve a God that is far off. He is continually near and we can draw near to him at any time. And, and I think that omnipresence um, ties in and you can never separate the attributes of God. I mean, we do that to study them, but they're all connected to one another and you have his omniscience here. He says, I know, and continually church after church, he says, I know your works. And, and so God has knowledge. We don't hide from God in any way. Um, he, he always knows the motives of our heart, even if nobody else in the church does. And even if, even if the whole um, church 
can have a good reputation. And that's one of the things in one of the churches, it says, uh, you have a, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. That's what he says to Sardis. And, and, uh, here God knows, even if nobody else knows, he knows. And it's important. I think that we can see that, uh, again, he addresses who he is and how it applies to this church because, He's omniscient. He knows what's going on, even though they've done all of these, they've done all of these things right in, in keeping this doctrinal stance. He knows that they've lost their first love. And it mm-hmm. might look to everybody else like, wow, this church is really, they've got it together. But Christ says, I know. Um, I know your heart. And I know that you're not loving the way you should. And I just know as, you in a way that no one else can. Yeah. No one, the things that the world may not perceive and even other believers may not perceive is not lost on God. Yeah. And that, that, um, that omniscience of God is both a comfort and a, a terror. It can be, um, you know, like if we're not doing what we're supposed to, um, we're not going to hide it from him, but there is comfort. Even if you, I mean, cause it says your patient endurance, which means, you know, enduring something implies suffering or hardship of some kind. And so there's comfort in knowing that God has not forgotten what I've been doing as mm-hmm. well. Uh, that there, there are those things that maybe nobody else knows that I've been enduring, but he knows, and, and he can always uh, comfort us in those times. And, and lastly, the thing I'll say about his omnipresence is, is that he tells them later on that, that, that he's, well, he says, I've been walking among, I walk among the golden lampstands and he says, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand. And so, um, you know, if the church doesn't correct what they're going to do, he's there and he has mm-hmm. the power to remove them or shut down their witness or however you want to say that he, he can, help them cease to, or he can cause them to cease to be uh, a church um, if they do not repent and return to what they tell them, what he's told them to. Hmm. I'm just going to comment on a couple of things you said there. So um, let me, let me preface my illustration or my application here with saying uh, my wife is not God and God is not my wife, but my wife knows me in a way, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'd be in trouble. No, my wife knows me in a specific way that other people don't know me. Mm-hmm. Right. So what I mean by that is because she's present with me and other times where other people aren't, um, she knows my weaknesses and she knows my strengths and, um, she can encourage me because when other people might say, Hey, um, you, you are not being faithful in this area. My wife knows that I have been faithful and may encourage me in that right? In a way where where other people can't see some things behind the scenes, Um, where other people might see great things from me. My wife might see what is true and real in ways that I have not served her well, right? And can point out those areas in ways other people can't. How much more can God, who sees what you might even try to hide from your wife or from your family or from your coworkers or friends, right? And so he is present, Uh, He perceives all, knows all. And because he does so, he can bring a word that no one else can Mm. individually to each specific church and to each specific person, right? So in the midst of persecution, this is my word I was going to kind of bring in this section. God not only knows us, sorry, in the midst of persecution, God only is, is not only with us powerfully, 
but he knows us personally. And because he knows us personally, he can bring um, uh, us his word practically. He can help us with his word practically. And Mm -hmm. sometimes helping us with his word practically hurts, right? Yeah. And sometimes it's encouraging, but both times it's for the benefit of ourselves and for the glory of his own name. Yeah. I love, I love that illustration of your wife because um, I absolutely know whenever my wife, um, she can, everybody else can be against me. And if she's for me, um, I'm okay. But at the same time, uh, her, her word of rebuke often hurts much worse uh, than others. And so I love that. That's great. Cause probably it's a real word. Oh, right. for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, if you know my wife, she's nothing if she is not real. <laughs> <laughs> I won't bring up some of the stuff. All right. Um, it's number three, culture. Uh, culture. And Brent, when I said that, I love Sherry. Uh, she was just so real when I was in uh, student ministry. And it was so encouraging. Uh, just the stuff that she would be real with. Uh, we're funny often. All right. Uh, number three, uh, culture. I think we're going to talk, I know our time is already short, but I think we're going to talk in this section, chapter two and chapter three, most about culture, because some of these things are just so practical to us as God's church. Um, And he's writing to his churches. So um, I I want to just point out something that I think is important. And I think you might have to rewind and listen to how I say this, because the way that I say it is kind of confusing, but I can't say it any more clear. Um, We have a tendency to dignify or put on a pedestal uh, the churches whose strengths we share and whose uh, weaknesses we also share. We tend to uh, put on a pedestal those whose strengths that we have. Oh, they're Ephesus. We're doctrinally vigilant like them. We're keeping the word of God. We're strong here. And their weaknesses we kind of minimize because, oh, man, those are great strengths. We have those strengths. Yes. However, we tend on the other end to almost demonize uh, those whose weaknesses are our strengths, right? So uh, maybe, uh, you know, the the church at Thyatira, uh, their weaknesses is they're not strong doctrinally. Oh, man, are you serious? They've totally missed the word of God here, right? It's right before them. Why don't they get it, right? And then we uh, minimize their strengths right? Because there are weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they love well, but, but they miss the word of God entirely, right? So what we need to do, I think, when we approach these chapters, chapter two and chapter three, is hey, we need to work on the weaknesses that are mentioned to the churches with, with whom, whose strengths we most identify. Yeah. Because while it may not be perfect in that, like Ephesus, we might not be there might be something else we struggle with rather than love when we're doctrinally vigilant. It's, I think those often kind of tie into one another. And I think that's why it's so practical. Oftentimes those that are very strong in doctrine might need to work in areas of love practically. What were you going to say? Well, I think you could probably, I mean, I'm not going to call anybody out, but like we could probably both look around and, and whoever's listening to this could look around and definitely see that today. Uh, This Mm -hmm. is not just pertaining to these churches in the first century for sure. If you're strong doctrinally, you're going to have to be extra diligent to make sure that you're living that out practically. Yeah. Let's look at some of the things that they do uh, well. Um, so when we look at the things they're not doing well, we don't want to minimize what they're doing well. That's the tendency to say, oh, um, they love well, but they 
um, really need this. So let's capitalize on this. Well, he, he really commends them for some things that they do before he rebukes them for some things that they're not doing. So let's look at what he commends them for. Um, I mentioned at the beginning that they're right in their hate, but they're wrong in their love, right? So what do I mean by they're right in their hate? What well, says um, they, um, they were not bearing with those that were evil, they tested those that called themselves apostles and they hated the works of the Nicolaitans, right? These are all uh, words of their doctrinal vigilance. Now, why is it okay to hate the works of the Nicolaitans? And why is it okay to not bear with those who are evil? Because, I mean, if you're talking about bearing, uh, part of love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is, hey, love um, hopes all things, believes all things and endures all things. So we ought to bear with one another our burdens and bear with one another our weaknesses. Um, but it says they don't bear with those who are evil. Why is that a positive thing, Corey? Well, I, I think it's because we are to reflect who God is. We are to reflect his character and nature because we have been redeemed and he's given us a new heart and all of those things. And we're to image him to the world. And there are things that God hates. I mean, you know, um, Proverbs six says there are six things the Lord hates seven that are detestable, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood and a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to, to, to run into evil and a false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Now that's directly applicable to what they're talking about here. These people are stirring up uh, conflict in the community because they're trying to lead people astray. And so like it is right for us to hate the things that God hates um, because they are contrary to his nature. They're contrary to his will. And so for us to um, not hate the things that God hates uh, would make us in the wrong. So, so we got to, I think, understand first and foremost, the very verse you brought up that it is okay for the Lord to hate. He is, uh, our God is a God of love. And yet because he is a holy God, there are things he rightly hates. And if we are his people and we are obedient to his word, loving his word will lead us to hate that which is opposed to his word. Mm -hmm. So there are some things we should, we, we should hate. We should hate the sin in our own lives that still exists and we should mortify it, put it to death, right? Yeah. I mean, that's the words of Colossians 3. So um, it is right that they rightly hate. And one thing and one way in which they hate something is they hate those that are corrupting uh, or they, they hate that which is corrupting the church. And one thing that they needed to do is not bear with those that are amongst the church that are doing so. Mm -hmm. And so I think they probably follow the command of first Corinthians chapter five and that the individual or maybe individuals or people amongst their churches that are living in unrepentant sin that is blasphemous and is corrupting the body. They have pushed out. They have right. excommunicated. They have put out of the church, both potentially for their good so that they know they are not believers mm -hmm. and for the moral purity of the church, because the purity of the church matters. It's a reflection of who God is to an onlooking world. Right. So they've not bared with what is bad. Uh, therefore, they have done well in that they have hated well. And this might sound foreign to us, 
but it is right in as much as it is in accordance with the word of God, what we hate. Right. And I, I think it's important here to, to notice in verse six that it says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Mm. And, and, you know, you hear some people say you're supposed to, supposed to hate the sin, love the sinner, hate the sinner. Love the sinner. And, and yeah. like, the, I think there is I said some... that wrong. I said, that. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Hate the sin, love the sinner, love the sinner, hate yeah. the sin. Sorry. Yeah. But, um, and, and so there is an element of that here is that, you know, by putting them out of the church, like you said, anytime that church discipline happens, it is supposed to be in a spirit of love. I mean, even in that first Corinthians, it's turned their flesh over to Satan so that their soul might be saved. And yeah. so you want people to repent and, and, and be redeemed to, to let them know that, Boy, you're not a believer. We we can't give we can't affirm that you are a believer in this point, and we want you to know that. And it's supposed to be so shocking to them that they repent and come back to Christ. And so, hmm. um, even in that, even in hating their works, they would be loving them by testing those spirits and 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 telling them you are in error here. That's good. Yeah, and and I think it's it's good to say, hey, there are times in the Psalms where. Um, where God hates the sinner, mm -hmm. but we are, I, I don't think biblically we're given the opportunity to say that that's us. I mean, in Romans chapter, um, uh, sorry, Romans chapter 12, it talks about um, vengeance belongs to the Lord or right. it says, uh, um, yeah, it's something like that. Vengeance is mine declares the Lord. Right. Mm -hmm. So in taking vengeance, we're taking something from God rather right. the command is to uh, uh, love the evil person. Thus, uh, bringing coals upon their head, which there's different interpretations of what that means, but overcome evil with good, mm -hmm. right? Our witness is supposed to be one that is um, uh, for the benefit, even of the one in sin. And sometimes that doesn't look like to the world it's for their benefit, but truly if we're following the word of God and not bearing with that certain individual and in specific unrepentant sin, that's for the benefit, as you mentioned, of that individual so that they, their soul might be saved in the end, right? Right. All right, we've got to keep moving. They're enduring patiently. They're not growing weary in doing so. Um, and so a, a lot of times through persecution, we might endure, uh, but it might just be like we're the most annoying people enduring a difficult time, right? And they're not annoying. It's, it sounds like they're not complaining, right? Philippians chapter two said, this is, not uh, this is something that should be noticeable about us is that we don't grumble and complain like the rest of the world does right? Uh, we should stand out in the midst of a wicked generation. And so one thing that is identifying this church um, as a, a, a part of their witness is they're not complaining, even though they're enduring difficult days. Right. But one thing that is not a part of their witness, and this is his rebuke, is that they've lost their love, their first love, right? They um, are commanded to repent and return to the works that they did at first, Right. They have a certain element of loving the Lord because of their doctrinal vigilance. They love the word of God, and yet they're missing a specific element and a specific command of the Lord that ought to be the overflow of their love for the Lord, which is their love for one another. Yeah. Right. Um, let, let me just say this. I, I think 1 Corinthians speaks clearly to this because 1 Corinthians 13, I know we keep going back to this book, but 1 Corinthians 13 starts out with, Basically, um, you can know all these things. You can say all these things. You can even give up your body to be burned, but without love, it's meaningless. So it doesn't matter what you know, what you say, or what you do. If you don't have love, it's in vain, yeah. right? 
And so they know all these things. Their head is strong, but their heart is not soft. And so he speaks to them by basically saying, hey, you've missed that which used to characterize your life, kindness, patience, endurance with one another, bearing one another's burdens within the limits of truth, right? Um, what is the love chapter in first Corinthians chapter 13 verses four through seven is not characterizing the church. And it's so important. And it's so important because that is part of their witness. You'll, you know, John 13, 35, I think says, um, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another, Mm -hmm. right? First John, uh, a new command I give you that you love one another, right? You can't have assurance if you don't love one another right? We know that we've been uh, uh, born again, if we love the brothers, but if you hate your brother, uh, you are like Cain, the evil one, right? Uh, So um, it gives us assurance. It's a command and it's our, I mean, it's our witness. So love is that important. I'm sorry. I went on for a long time there. What, what, what what would you like to say? Uh, I think you pretty well uh, summed it up there. And um, I I think something that you mentioned is that this is primarily talking about our love for others. And a lot of people want to want to say, well, that they've lost their first love. They've lost their, their love for God. Um, But that has to be practically worked out and how we live toward, toward others. Um, Those two things are, are intricately connected uh, and you will not rightly love others without, loving God rightly, but it, but it does have to, your, your uh, conduct has to be tied to your character. And, uh, and that's what it shows in, in this particular passage. Yeah. I preach first John and, and like first Corinthians before 13, the love chapter. And like you have those individuals that may be strong in doctrine um, in your church. And, and this is of course, a, a pastor identifies these things, right. And hopefully in, in their own lives, there's some that are maybe um, uh, seemingly unloving yet doctrinally seeming strong and you've got to remind people, hey, uh, you might be saying, you know, pastor, get back to the theology things. Well, your theology is whack if you don't think that <laughs> this is absolutely theological in the way that you love one another, yeah. right? Um, because if you know the love that God has poured out upon you, um, then you ought to love one another. And if you don't love one another, you may not fully grasp or know the love of God in your own yeah, life. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, there's repentance mentioned here. Uh, Corey, teach me about repentance. <laughs> I'm just gonna, well. I may, need, uh, sorry. I may need to find somebody else to do this podcast with if you don't know this. Yeah, yeah, I've just but, talked a lot, so I'm gonna <laughs> let you talk. Uh, well, I, he says a couple of things here uh, that they're supposed to do. They're to remember from where they have fallen, and then they're to repent and do those works. Uh, re- repentance is something that. It has to be continual in the life of the believer. We often think of it as this single solitary moment that whenever you turn to Christ and, and you repent, turning away from yourself and turning to God and finding um, in, in when you receive salvation in that moment. But repentance should be characteristic of the life of a believer because God is continually revealing things to us that we need to repent of. Now, I'm not saying that you know, you just need to be wearing sackcloth and ashes every day and that you just need to be in a state of mourning. Like we as believers are called to be in a state of joy, but whenever God reveals something to you, like he's revealed here to the church at Ephesus, um, they have, they need to repent. And, and the first thing he says to them is to remember, what are they remembering? They're remembering from where they have fallen, 
they have to remember that they have fallen short of some of doing these works. And they need to remember that what it was like to have received the gospel the first time and, and, and what it felt like to understand that God was holy and that they were sinful and they had sinned against the holiness of God and, and just the weight of that. And they were to remember what it was like whenever they felt that love of God and that unconditional acceptance that, that he gives them. And as a result of that, that remembrance, they are to repent because they have not completed these works that they were supposed to do. And so therefore they are to, they are to do them, um, do those things that they did at first, whenever they were first believers, and, uh, and they were there to get back to those things because, uh, I, I don't know how old you were, uh, whenever you were saved, I, I was seven years old. And so like, but even at seven years old, I can remember the feeling, uh, I am 48 now. And so that's been a long time ago, but I can remember that feeling of just this relief and joy and all of those things that I had as a result of coming to Christ. And, and it, it meant that I wanted to uh, share that with others and and serve them and do those things even at seven years old. Now it may not be in the same ways that I do it now at forty eight, but even a seven year old uh, can can do the works of Christ. Mm. And so, yeah, yeah. I think if, if this is a struggle, maybe in a believer's life, one who's truly trusted the Lord and they just feel doc, maybe they feel doctrinally heavy, yet just dull in their love, maybe they're strong in their mind yet not soft in their heart. I think it's okay to say what you said. Just Hey, pray the prayer of the psalmist, Daniel, where he said, restore to me the joy of your salvation, right? right? Identify those things, which is remember, identify those things in your life that exist that do not please the Lord in accordance uh, or in opposition to his word. Um, repent, mortify those things in your life. So identify, mortify, Colossians 3 says, put to death those things that are earthly in you. And then seek your life to glorify God in ways that maybe you had fallen short of doing prior to that. So mm-hmm. identify, mortify, glorify, right? Remember, repent, return. Um, and if that's just a struggle for you, ask God to restore to you the joy of his salvation. Yeah. Hey, we, we've got a long time here. Uh, controversy. Do you want to mention just a couple things briefly before we close? Yeah, I, th- I think uh, one of the things I'll just I'll just mention that I just talked about was remember from where you have fallen. Um, some people would look at that and maybe think, well, does that mean you can lose your salvation? Well, definitely that is not what that is meaning. Um, I said that weird, <laughs> but uh, that, that is not what that is trying to communicate at all. It just means um, a moral failure to complete the works that God uh, has given you to do. And so this is not talking about in any way salvation, uh, as it were. Um, so, so let me comment on that. So the fallenness talked about here is... Um, a fallenness, like it's a practice of the Lord's people, not a fallen position before the Lord. Right. Absolutely. Right. So uh, my son is still my son. If he disobeys my command and I have a stern talk with him and say, hey, you have not obeyed my command. Uh, you have fallen short of the way that I'm, I've commanded you to live. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and he, here's how I want you to obey for your good. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this is not. I'm sending my son to be 
adopted by someone else or, you know, to the foster home or anything like like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You've been adopted into his family or remain in his family. I mean, we are pro eternal security. I mean, we, we believe in the perseverance of the saints, those that have truly trusted in the Lord will persevere. Mm -hmm. They will heed this command. They will obey what the Lord calls them to obey. Right. Because they have been given new hearts, new minds, new eyes. And, uh, there's just so many verses across scripture that basically say, Hey, the Lord will hold you fast. Mm-hmm. Love that song. He will hold me yeah, fast. Yeah. It's true. Right. It is. Um, Jude 24 through 25. He will keep you blameless. Um, he who is able to keep you blameless until the day of redemption. Uh, Ephesians chapter one, uh, you've received the Holy Spirit, which is the seal of the day of redemption. Uh, John chapter 10, he's got you in his hand and uh, his father, who's even greater, will, will not let you from his hand. Um, Romans chapter eight, uh, what can separate us from the love of God, right? Um, verse upon verse. I mean, Philippians chapter one, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. There's so many verses that basically say, if you've truly trusted the Lord, you are the Lord's, you will remain the Lord's now heed his command. And these warnings I think are put out to basically say, um, uh, as the means by which you will, uh, persevere, we need right. warnings, right? And those who are truly the elect believers will heed those warnings mm-hmm. and they will do so because of the gracious steadfastness of the Lord, uh, in our life and our own desire to obey the Lord. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I may have got you off track. Is anything you want to add to that? No, no, no. Uh, one, one other thing I'd mentioned in the, yeah. in the area of controversy would be this call to hear. Um, it says he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Um, what is that talking about? Well, not everyone is going to hear. Not everyone is going to respond. Um, and I think we need to understand this in the context of the way Jesus taught. Um, he taught uh, it's at some point in parables. And the disciples were so confused about this. They went to him and they said, um, why are you teaching in parables? And he said, it, it's been given to you to understand these things. It's been revealed to you. Well, in Jesus' ministry, he had some pretty straightforward teaching. Uh, but there, there came to be a point whenever, they, whenever the people didn't accept the straightforward teaching that he had given them, then he began to teach in these parables so that they would not understand. So, Uh, because they had rejected his teaching, they were not going to understand further what he was talking about. Well, you've got that same pattern that happens here in Revelation, because in the first three chapters, there's a lot of very straightforward teaching. And I'm not saying there's no symbolism. We've we've obviously talked about symbolism in the first three chapters uh, or so far of what we've gone over. But once you get past chapter three and go from, from four all the way through 22, really, um, you're going to have much more symbolism. You're going to have the talking about dragons and, um, and uh, the beast and the, with the 10 horns and all of these things. And it's a lot more symbolic. And so if you don't heed the warnings and the, 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 the straightforward teaching that he gives here in these uh, first few chapters, you're not going to understand the rest of the book. And so as a result of, um, that Jesus is saying right here to them, he who has ears, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. This is so important. You better get this. Cause if not, you're not going to understand the rest of the book either. Mm. 
So, uh, so as we as we hear these things, we need to similarly, just as the church then, the church today, now, heed and hear the commands given to the churches. Yeah. And, and I think the reason that's controversial is because, like, we we don't want to think, well, some some get to hear and some don't. But that's exactly what's happening here is that some will hear and some will not. Um, now, does that mean that um, does that mean they have no um, no choice in that at all? Well, they've obviously rejected the straightforward teachings of God. And mm. so as a result of that, it's it's even more cryptic and more difficult to understand and they won't understand it. And so, yeah, um, yeah. And 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 giving some of my theological perspective here, Romans chapter nine, when we even begin to ask those questions, mm-hmm. Paul inspired by the Lord basically says, who are you to say if that's okay or not? Yeah. Right. right. Um, uh, the, the Lord remains just and right and good. Mm-hmm. Even if we can't fully understand or grasp all that is, um, you know, w- within what he does. So, right. Hey, let's pray out. And uh, Corey, it's been good talking with you. Yeah, I hope this, I really think this is a helpful episode. I hope it continues to be helpful for others. So let me pray um, and uh, we'll conclude the podcast. Right. God, we thank you for the great blessing of um, reading your word together, of walking through it together. Lord, as we hear a warning that can be so important for us to hear, Lord, help us heed that warning. Uh, Lord, I pray that um, you would convict our hearts in areas in which we have not lived pleasing to your sight. Um, Lord, if there's areas in, in, in which we have not loved one another well, especially in these just interesting days with uh, COVID-19, Lord, help us to um, convict us where we've gone wrong. Uh, help us to remember and identify um, maybe areas in which that we've uh, not obeyed so that we might mortify and repent of those ways. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement your word brings, that we do look forward to paradise with you, present with you forever. Uh, Lord, we thank you for holding us fast and keeping us strong until that day. We love you. We thank you for first loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for being with us today. Uh, Again, we do encourage you to go give us a review on one of the podcast formats. And uh, also just remember on all those different social media platforms, uh, you can find us there now. We'll talk with you next week.